0: listeners, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we discuss the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident ancient Greek literature specialist, and um, today I'm all on my own. Obviously, this isn't a normal episode. I am, in fact, spending a dollar twice today. Um, This episode is being produced as part of my project for a class that I'm taking this term in grad school. Because of that, I'm going to be a little more scholarly than usual, and you'll see in the episode info that there's a script and a bibliography for this one. I don't know how strictly the script is going to reflect all of exactly what I say. It's not a transcript. I'm writing the script in advance, not afterwards. But I wanted to make sure that I actually cite my sources in this one a little bit more thoroughly than usual. So with all of that out of the way, I'll jump right in. In this episode, I am going to be discussing Till We Have Faces, A Myth Retold, a novel by C.S. Lewis published in 1956. A lot of you will probably be familiar with Lewis by way of Chronicles of Narnia, his series of children's novels. This book, uh, Till We Have Faces, came after those and is actually the latest novel-length work that he published. It was written for adults. And in a lot of ways, it doesn't have very much in common with Narnia, but there are definitely some similarities. Um, for one, uh, I'd call this speculative fiction, just like Narnia is maybe even historical fantasy. And it's definitely super Christian, which is sort of Lewis's brand. I mean, if you've read Narnia, you probably know that. Or maybe if you were like me and you grew up a Jewish atheist or some other kind of atheist, You are just now learning that the talking lion is an allegory for Jesus and Narnia is Bible stories all the way down. If so, surprise, it's all Jesus here. It is just going to keep being Jesus, but we are going to get to that. Don't worry. So if you're new to the podcast, hello to my professor. I don't expect that you've listened to this podcast before. I will begin with a quick summary of the media in question. Till We Have Faces is a retelling, as the subtitle suggests, of the Cupid and Psyche myth, as is presented in the metamorphoses of, wait for it, Apuleius. Not Ovid. For once, I get to not talk about Ovid. Anyway, for the sake of um, not being super confusing, this novel is often also called The Golden Ass because it's mostly about a guy who gets turned into a donkey. I'm gonna talk about the golden ass, specifically a bunch like later. But for now, what's important to know is that the golden ass contains a whole bunch of embedded narratives, um, stories within stories, including the story of Cupid and Psyche. In that story, a girl named Psyche enrages Aphrodite by being too beautiful, more or less, and she ends up getting cursed to be married to a monster. However, Cupid, Aphrodite's son, falls in love with Psyche at first sight oh, how the turntables, and he marries her instead in secret. She gets to go live in a magic castle and bone down with the literal god of love every night on the condition that she doesn't look at him. Unfortunately, her sisters find out about this and in their jealousy, they convince her to take a lamp into her bedchamber. When she reveals Cupid, he wakes up and then he has to leave her behind while she gets cursed again, poor girl, Uh, This time, she has to wander around the world and do, like, a bunch of impossible tasks. Eventually, Cupid and Psyche are reunited, and they together go plead her case to Zeus. He overrules Aphrodite, and Psyche becomes a goddess. They get married. They live happily ever after. This is sort of what happens until we have faces. Lewis's version is told from the point of view not of Psyche, who is the main protagonist in Apuleius, but instead from the point of view of her older sister, who Lewis names Orual, Also, we're not in vague mythological ancient Greece anymore. The story is set in a fictional kingdom called Glome, G-L-O-M-E. Yes, I, I know. Look, I'm tired, trust me. Anyway, Orwell really loves her sister, almost to an obsessive degree, and when Psyche is sacrificed to the Shadow Beast, also known as the Lord of the Mountain, basically the shadowy mountain god known as, like, the son of Ungit, the goddess of love, Orwell gets all worried. Uh, Of course. So would you be if your sister was being sacrificed to a shadowy mountain deity. Anyway, she ends up tracking Psyche to a magical grove, but unlike in Apuleius' version, Orowal is not able to see the castle that Psyche believes herself to be living in. In fear that Psyche is either completely insane or that she’s being raped by deception by a monster or a monstrous man, she forces her sister by way of threatening to kill herself, to take the lamp into the bedchamber. After that, it pretty much goes like the original. Psyche is banished and suffers, etc. Meanwhile, Orowal becomes queen and she lives a long full life, most of which is covered in a time skip. In her old age, Orwell travels and learns that there is a temple to Psyche, um, also called Istra in the book, and that the version of her deification being told in that temple is the one from Apuleius. Orwell is enraged at being painted as jealous when, in her mind, the gods had cruelly deceived her. She writes a vicious screed decrying her treatment by the gods. However, in the final pages of the book, there's this abrupt tonal shift and Orwell has a vision where it's revealed to her that indeed she was jealous of Psyche, particularly of her beauty, and jealous of having lost her love to the god. She learns that Psyche has indeed become a goddess and forgiven her for causing her pain. And in fact, that all of Orwell's agony of guilt since her sister vanished has been, in essence, Orwell bearing the pain of her own sins, as well as the suffering that Psyche might have gone through in doing her impossible tasks. Because Orwell bore that pain, Psyche didn't suffer herself. At the end, Orwell dies, and there's a little postscript that makes it clear that the whole text of the novel of Till We Have Faces is meant to be the book that Orwell wrote relating her experiences. So that's the book. And that probably sounded like a load of nonsense, which is because this book is like 50% philosophy, 40% vibes, and 10% actual coherent plot. It's extremely difficult to explain this thing succinctly in a way that doesn't leave out a whole bunch of stuff. And as it is, I don't really think I managed. I'll bring stuff up fresh or bring it up again as needed. We'll we'll do our best. So I'm going to signpost this like I would if I were writing an essay because my only external accountability is myself today. First, I'm going to tell you all whether I liked this book. Actually, I'm going to do that right now. I absolutely did not like this. Reading this book was like pulling teeth and it made me furious. (laughs) I don't give a shit if this book was of its time. It's misogynist, racist, and way too Christian for my taste. But I did read it. So uh, now I will talk about the following things. Intertextuality more generally. There's a lot of that. And this book's relationship with the golden ass in specific, plus some like reception theory sprinkled in for flavor. Picture me doing the like salt guy meme. Then religion and conversion narratives, sort of, but like specifically religion conversion narratives and this book's relationship to the golden ass. Um, And then I'll finish up by talking about gender and beauty and just the whole pile of misogyny that is happening in this book. And then as usual, I will have some petty gripes. Would it really be classically trained without some petty gripes? No. So onward. Uh, I literally just said this, so you already know that I'm starting with intertextuality. Um, maybe I should say what intertextuality is. Uh, basically, it's any interaction between a text and some other text: references, language borrowing, stuff like that. Classical literature is super intertextual because the core cultural texts. You know, Homer, the myths that tragedy was based on, all that stuff. They were pretty broadly familiar to everyone who was doing literary theory or producing texts of their own. There's like a strong central canon. But we do see a lot of intertextuality in literature today as well. Basically, this whole podcast is actually a study of intertextuality. We are looking at modern stories and their ancient intertexts. In the case of Till We Have Faces, The Golden Ass is its primary intertext, but it's definitely not its only intertext, which is why I want to talk about this. There are, let's go with a lot of references to other classical literature in this book. I actually stopped marking them with sticky notes after a while because the point was made like 50 pages into this 300 page book. A lot of the references come from the character The Fox, who is Orwell's primary tutor and advisor. This guy, he's Greek. He was brought to gloom as a slave. And yes, Greece is like a real place. Greek literature exists. Greek people. Greek history. It's all real. Surprise! Historical fantasy. Anyways. Yeah, so this guy, The Fox, he's Greek. He was brought to gloom as a slave. And he's like, okay, so mostly he's like a Platonist. He's a Platonic philosopher. For those who are unfamiliar with Platonism, which like, okay, sort of includes me as well, but I'm gonna do my best here. Platonism's core aspects, or at least the ones that are the most important for getting what the Fox is doing in this book, are uh first of all, that the truth of the world is transcendent and the form of that truth can't be perceived by regular means or like the form of anything, actually, the true form of anything, and that second that as kind of part of that, the true nature of the gods, the highest gods in the universe, is fundamentally good and to say otherwise about them is like a misrepresentation. That one I, I know a little better because it comes out of the Republic, at least partly. There's a lot of other stuff going on in Platonism and there are a lot of Platonic philosophers in antiquity, including Apuleius, but in terms of stuff that the fox talks about, those are the big ones. His philosophy really informs the way he talks about Greek culture and religion and literature to Orwell and the way that he frames it all. Like, okay, for example, he cites the story of Iphigenia and the ultimate fate of the House of Agamemnon in order to try to stop the king of Glom from sacrificing Psyche to the mountain god. And later on, he's the one who tells Orwell that Psyche is probably married to some bandit rather than to a god at all, because to him... A God who would do such a thing can't be a real God. He's also all about like accordance with the true capital N nature of reality. And these kind of transcendental views of like truth and nature and God, that sort of stuff, it, it's very closely related to some of the roots of early Christianity. And so we'll see these themes come back when I talk about religion a little later on. But for now, uh, to get back on track, the fox is also important because he's the source of a lot of the casual references to Greek literature that we have in this book. Uh, Not all of them. Orwell, you know, she's been educated by him. So she refers to herself, for example, as having missed the chance to be Iphigenia. So she'll be Antigone instead at one point. She couldn't be sacrificed. So instead, she will sacrifice herself to mourn her sister properly. But yeah, aside from a few points uh, with Oriwell, the fox is the one who's making a lot of these references. Um, really early on, for example, uh, this is page 21, he describes baby Psyche as looking the same as, and I quote, Helen herself new hatched. He's also the source for the fact that the goddess Ungit, who is worshipped in Glom, um, that's U-N-G-I-T, she's the same as the Greek Aphrodite. He also makes some historical references, like at one point he says that the guard captain Bardia is, quote, as amorous as Alcibiades, uh, who was an Athenian general who was around during the Peloponnesian War and was famously, well, amorous is the polite word. (laughs) Uh, anyways, this uh, casual but really intense reference to Greek stories is super interesting for a lot of reasons, but I'm going to bring up one more thing before I get into those, and that's the library that Orwell builds in Glome. While Orwell is the queen of Glome, she sets out to build a library of Greek texts. She manages to assemble 18 works of which she lists seven, plus some conversations of Socrates, quote, which could have been counted as like one or more. I'm unsure. Uh, This list is on page 232 of the book. Some of these texts are quite easily identifiable, others less so. For myself, I'm familiar or familiar-ish with four of them. Uh, One is Homer's Iliad through to the beginning of book 16, where Patroclus comes to Achilles in tears. The second two are two plays by Euripides, the Andromeda, which um, isn't extant, and the Bacchae, which is. And then the fourth one is a book of poetry by Heraclitus, who was to my mind, a fairly incomprehensible pre-Socratic philosopher that we have some fragments of. The rest of the works in this library are kindly identified and discussed in a great article called Browsing the Gloam Library by Doris Myers. She identifies the rest as an early agricultural manual that could be any number of things but was referenced by later authors, A poem that we don't have anymore by a guy called Hesius Stesichorus, which talked about how Helen was terrible and adulterous and caused the Trojan War, Boo, which apparently later on in life he recanted and he wrote a different one where she was in Egypt the whole time and therefore blameless. We have that same version in Euripides. And then there's uh, the also in the library is the aforementioned Socratic dialogues, which could have been anything but maybe like uh, some of the dialogues that we have from Plato. So like the Symposium, the Phaedrus, and then last but not least, uh, the metaphysics of Aristotle. So the library is a mix of stuff that we have in the modern day, like texts that still exist, and also some stuff that we know about, but that we don't have the text of anymore. However, according to Myers, this list is both pretty historically reasonable in terms of what a foreign library could get their hands on and super thematically resonant. See, just like how everything the fox says and all the references he makes are used to reinforce the overall themes of the book, you know, this is just like that other thing that happened that you already know about from mythology. Ooh, implications and foreshadowing. Ooh. Uh... The library consists entirely of works that are also about the main themes of Till We Have Faces, love and divinity. This Myers article analyzes pretty closely how the specific works are related to the overall development of Orwell as a character, as well as her extremely disordered love towards Psyche and her messed up relationship with the gods. There's a lot going on here, but I'll pick out one example. The gloam copy of the Iliad stops with Patroclus entering at the start of book 16, Weeping. Anybody who's read the Iliad knows that what happens right after this is that Achilles makes a choice out of love for Patroclus that ultimately leads to Patroclus' death, or so we can understand the episode if we want to compare it to what Orwell does and what it ends up causing for Psyche. Now, personally, I don't think Myers is right that you need to have read all or frankly even any of the stuff that Lewis references in this passage and throughout the book to understand what he's going on about or to appreciate till we have faces. God knows I've read a number of these things and I didn't appreciate it at all. But she's not wrong that it does give some texture and it makes the themes like blunter when you have these points of comparison almost to the point actually of sometimes feeling a little like you're being hit over the head with them, especially the God stuff, but that's how most super-Christian literature I've encountered is in my experience, so there you go. Anyway, these direct references to Greek philosophy and literature also have this, like, pseudo-historical effect. They're meant to give you the sense, um, alongside other world-building details, that this book is set in the actual real world. So, all its messages about how we as mortals should relate to divinity and how we should conduct ourselves in love are kind of grounded in reality. Like, it still has some distance, Gloam is still a fictional kingdom and all, but I I don't know, I think it's fair to say that Lewis is, in this book as in a lot of stuff, trying to convince people of something. By standing up Cupid and Psyche in reality in a way that even Apuleius doesn't really do, despite the golden ass also being nominally set in the real world, It makes the message about how we're meant to trust in God and so on like an actual real message. It's still allegorical to some degree, but like less. The story of Cupid and Psyche had a real meaning to C.S. Lewis when he encountered it in Apuleius. He had a light bulb moment about its moral, and he's giving that moral back in a different and, in my opinion, super blunt form. Essentially what I'm saying is that all of these references in this book invite the reader to think about what all these stories actually mean. When we talk about reception, we talk about the process of meaning making that happens when someone reads a book. Charles Martindale, who's kind of a landmark scholar of classical reception and reception theory, wrote in his book Redeeming the Text that meaning is always realized at the point of reception. That is, any text is actively transformed when it's read by new people because the meaning of a text appears in the act of reading it. Till We Have Faces is a really great and super direct example of this, which is why I picked it. Lewis fortunately describes for us the meaning-making lightbulb moment that he had when he read Apuleius. And he talks about his work in very reception-y terms in his afterword. Lewis read The Golden Ass, and he had an epiphany that the Cupid and Psyche narrative means a certain thing. Something to do with the power of faith, I think, which I'll talk about more in a minute. And he's actively re-presenting the story in those terms. Now, I don't think he's right, per se, about what Cupid and Psyche is, like, about. Because to me, that story, the version in Apuleius, it's about different stuff, But I understand because I know stuff about reception that there's no one meaning for a story and everyone's going to take different things away from reading a text. So like, he's not wrong either. And he's not wrong to understand the other stories he mentions again and again in this book in certain ways and recycle their themes to support his own, whether I agree with his understandings or not. It's just how he received those texts. Like the Iliad being about disordered love or whatever. And I mean... I'm understanding his understandings all in the context of the work as I'm reading it. So it's not like I can say for sure that these are the exact themes he intended. They're just the ideas that I came away from this book with. And so on it goes. So I just said like a second ago that C.S. Lewis decided that Cupid and Psyche is about uh, something, something, power of faith, God, something. Great. What the fuck? Well, first, I'm going to read an excerpt from the afterword of Till We Have Faces. Lewis says, and I quote, The central alteration of my own version consists in making Psyche's palace invisible to normal mortal eyes, if making is not the wrong word for something which forced itself on me, almost at my first reading of the story as the way the thing must have been. This change, of course, brings with it a more ambivalent motive and a different character for my heroine and finally modifies the whole quality of the tale. I felt quite free to go behind Apuleius, whom I supposed to have been its transmitter and not its inventor. Nothing was further from my aim than to recapture the peculiar quality of the Metamorphoses, that strange compound of picaresque novel, horror comic, mystagogues tract, pornography, and stylistic experiment. Apuleius was, of course, a man of genius, but in relation to my work, he is a source, not an influence, nor a model. End quote. So I'm going to pick through this um, bit by bit a little. First of all, I kind of already talked about the first thing. Lewis tells us about his light bulb moment. He read The Golden Ass and basically was like, wow, this Cupid and Psyche story is definitely about the relationship between the mortal and the divine. It's about faith. It's about religion and love and a bunch of other stuff. But that's the central epiphany as he represents it here. And like, that's super obvious in the rest of this book. So I'm gonna talk about Christianity until we have faces for a bit. So (laughs) I said this already, but... Who boy, is this book ever Christian. It is so fucking Christian. In like, a bunch of ways. But uh, I guess I'll start with the obvious one and one of the more interesting in my own opinion. This book is a conversion narrative. Now, why is this so interesting? Well, Not so much because of Till We Have Faces itself, though that is interesting. Um, I'll come around and talk about the specifics in a second. But because the source material, the golden ass, can be read as a conversion narrative as well. And I really mean the golden ass as in the whole novel that the Cupid and Psyche narrative is contained inside. Now, I say can be read as a conversion narrative because scholars are like, Okay, you know those mild comments you see sometimes on Wikipedia or whatever that's like, ooh, scholars disagree. Yeah, understatement in most cases, including this one. So the way it works in The Golden Ass is the main character of that book, Lucius, he goes on a bunch of adventures while he's busy being a donkey, And then at the end of the book, he has a vision of the goddess Isis, and she tells him that one of her priests has the roses that he needs to eat in order to turn back into a human. And after he turns back because of the priest, he becomes an initiate of her cult, and then he gets initiated twice more. There's a couple of ways to read this, some more sincere than others. There's a pretty strong argument to be made that Apuleius is actually making Lucius look like a fool here since he has to beggar himself in order to be initiated so many times and he like shaves his head, which the Romans thought was pretty goofy. But I digress. Some people think the last book of the golden ass is like a pretty sincere turn towards accepted cult practice that is religion and some people think it's satire or pure comedy. Either way, structurally, it's basically a conversion narrative. And in fact, there's a lot of similarities between this book, structurally speaking, and Augustine's Confessions, or Augustine. I'm going to go on pronouncing it Augustine. Anyway, uh, Augustine's Confessions, which is a pretty archetypical early Christian conversion story. You know, life of sin, disillusionment, and or misfortune turned toward God, enlightenment. Except that outside of Christianity, conversion in the way that we think about it today wasn't so much of a thing back then. See, Apuleius was writing in about the mid-2nd century CE, the 100s-ish, which is kind of too early for Christian conversion narratives to actually be a thing. There's only one arguably Christian character in the golden ass, and Apuleius is kind of super mean about her. Roman culture at the time was still pretty fundamentally polytheistic, so the kind of conversion that we see today, that is forsaking one religion or atheism for another one, is like pretty unheard of. I mentioned Augustine a second ago. He wasn't around for another 200 years or so. So yeah, Christianity happened really fucking fast as far as like the grand scale of history goes, but... It was only just kicking off as like a thing when Apuleius was around. So Apuleius' narrative, though it bears some structural similarity to what becomes typical of conversion narratives later, isn't really a conversion narrative. I don't want to get too deep into this, but there's a chapter on conversion in Apuleius um, by a guy called Keith Bradley in a book called Apuleius in Antonine Rome. Really worth looking into if you have institutional access. But uh, Till We Have Faces definitely is a conversion narrative in the modern sense. Orwell starts out hateful and suspicious towards the gods, and she comes to recognize their power, majesty, and wisdom. She dies having grasped at last that everything that happened to her, all her suffering, was because of her defiance and unwillingness to trust that the gods, God, had a plan for her and her sister, and that And because of her lack of faith in the goodness of their will. Lucius's situation is different in that he doesn't really not believe in the gods before he meets Isis. He's just more interested in magic, that is, the pseudo-divine workings of mortal practitioners, certainly in connection with the gods but not of them, uh, than he is in cult practice. Arguably, and by arguably, I mean, people smarter than me have argued this. Um, I read Regina May's article on this topic and found it quite convincing. Uh, Lucius's character actually stays really consistent even into the final book of this novel because he doesn't stop being interested in, let's say, the mysteries of the universe and powers beyond the mortal. It's just that at the end, in the final book of the Golden Ass, Lucius focuses that interest on the cult of Isis. He doesn't really get any less obsessive, any better at keeping secrets, or any less fascinated by all the stuff he thought was cool before. In a similar vein, we could say that the overall tone of the novel, comedic, stays pretty consistent as well if we accept the Isis book as satirical, which it's reasonably easy to read it as. Um, I'm also throwing a chapter by Stephen Harrison on this topic into the bibliography. Now, personally, I think it's possible to say that the tone of the book is comedic and that Lucius's devotion to Isis is sincere because Lucius is a moron, but like, that's not a hill I want to die on. Anyway, suffice to say that however a reader of The Golden Ass took this, they wouldn't be reading a straightforward conversion narrative. Till We Have Faces is a more serious book overall than The Golden Ass. That statement I read up at the top, Lewis really seems to understand his version of Cupid and Psyche as being true in some way to like the Ur-myth of Cupid and Psyche, not just Apuleius's version. That being said, I think that Lewis is more influenced by it than he thinks, because the golden ass, just like a lot of Apuleius' writing, revolves around a really keen interest in what we could call the numinous, that is, the unstructured, transcendent divine. And that interest is one that Lewis shares, if in his case mediated by his Christianity. I think that Lewis is fooling himself a bit if he doesn't think he's influenced by Apuleius, because he big time is, just not in the obvious way, maybe. Anyway, I'll send you all to another piece of bibliography here. Uh, David H. Sick has an article about Lewis, Apuleius, and the divine that lays out how Lewis seems to feel he's accessing a sort of higher truth, a higher myth, something that's transcendent of the observable and also true in a way beyond its immediate literary presentation. Lewis wasn't throwing out Greco-Roman paganism in order to talk about God in his work here. He's, I don't know, kind of trying to elevate it. He makes Mediterranean cult almost a way of accessing the truth about the higher divine. At the end of Till We Have Faces, for example, Orwell hears the original version of Cupid and Psyche in the mouth of a priest of a small cult who says that the story is part of their cult practices, part of the way that they worship Psyche herself as a goddess. So more of Apuleius sneaks into Lewis than he thinks. That being said, I also think it's worth noting that while this book isn't really derisive towards, well, not towards all Greco-Roman cult practice at least, it's definitely dismissive of some of it. For one, that passage where Orwell hears the story, she says that for the priest, quote, uh, page 246, the story and the worship were all one in his mind. It sort of positions the rituals of the cult as maybe misappropriating the divine truth of the story, the truth of Orwell's experiences with the divine, for use in an ill-informed seasonal worship cycle. The deity is true, and the story is true, but their practices are wrong because they're grounded in this mundane cycle of the seasons rather than being connected to the higher truth of God. Similarly, there's a late passage where Orwell goes into the house of Unged, who was originally represented only by an uncarven black stone, but has been supplanted by a finely carved Greek statue. And Orwell finds for herself that the old Unget is a m- more powerful than the figural representative because the old o- Unget is kind of transcendent of mortal understanding. Her face can only be grasped a little at a time, not really held on to. The old unget is multifaceted, primal, and kind of one-ish, if that makes sense. Like, she's the mother goddess of everything. That sort of theology, or at least the roots of it, are in common with Platonism. But we recognize it best as being at the root of a lot of Judeo-Christian theology. And yes, I'm using Judeo-Christian on purpose and properly for once, because this stuff is actually in Judaism too. Anyway, the people worshipping the new unget are like not getting anything out of it, because that capturing of the god's image, I don't know, it diminishes her, it limits her somehow. And as I said, in the same way as the thing with the priest, the fancy Greek statue makes the divine mundane in a way that was common in Greco-Roman cult, but is kind of alien to Christian sensibilities. To my understanding, even Jesus is like a transcendent figure for all that he was a real dude who had dirt under his fingernails, you know? Anyway, I've digressed. Um, I've talked past a lot of the most direct Christian reference in this book because it's kind of hard to know where to start. Uh, I guess I'll go back to something I said earlier. Lewis says that it was obvious to him that it quote unquote must have been the case that the sisters, in this case Orwell, didn't see the castle. And to me, that's the turning point that turns this book into one that's fundamentally about faith, which is what divides Christianity from Greco-Roman religion. In the ancient Mediterranean world, you could live a fully religious life and not believe in the gods, but that's not a thing that works super great with Christianity. Urwal attends services dedicated to Unget. she goes through the motions, but she's against the gods, she's a non-believer, and faced with Psyche's faith, she tries to break her sister's belief rather than accept the flashes of the divine that she's been presented with. There's an interesting article in Mythlore by Nancy Lou Patterson about the religious imagery and connections between Till We Have Faces and the Bible that describes Orwell's jealousy of Psyche not as material jealousy, like that of the sisters in the Apulean version, but as, and I quote, the jealousy of the unconverted for the converted. She's angry because Psyche used to love her above all else and has transferred her devotion to the god she's married to, because Psyche has become connected to something beyond Orwell's perception and understanding. Psyche herself says on page 125 that Orwell must, quote, come to her, unquote. She can't undo her own faith, and Orwell has to convert to restore their relationship. Only when Orwell comes to accept that she was jealous, that she does want to accept God into her heart, as the case may be, is she actually able to do so and become reconciled with her sister, who is now herself divine. So that's like the core of it. I could elaborate on any one of the other million things about this book that are extremely Christian, but in terms of ones that are super important and also like academically interesting, that's a lot of it. Um, so I'm just going to list a couple of the biggest and most obvious hits of, like, Christian themes and reference, and then I will move on to my final topic. Okay, first. On page 72, Psyche says, How can I be the ransom for all of Gloam unless I die? And if I am to go to the god, of course it must be through death. Her sacrifice to the mountain god, and all that comes after, is figured Very similarly, in my opinion, to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, including that she suffers for Orwell's sins and is eventually raised to divinity herself. We get another reference to the same at the very end, the idea that Psyche has endured everything she has endured for Orwell, and that Orwell's suffering was born in turn for Psyche. It's really embedded into modern society, so we don't always clock just how much the idea of suffering for someone else's sins is like super duper extra-Christian martyrdom, all of that. It's definitely not unheard of in other religions, but how common it is in modern Western literature definitely has its roots in Christianity specifically, especially in conjunction with ideas about divinity and transcendence like it is here. Also, um, there's in this book some very Christian phrasing of stuff that like, Okay, so it's not that this stuff didn't exist in ancient Mediterranean culture, but uh, so for example, um, on page 233, uh, quote, the one sin the gods never forgive us is that of being born women, unquote. Direct reference to the myth of the original sin. And it's not like the Greeks and the Romans weren't misogynist as fuck too, but this one's super Christian to my eye, even just off the back of using the word sin, Not all of the stuff um, about gender in this book is as Christian as this, which I'll talk about in a minute here, but there are a couple of standouts, ideas about marriage and stuff too. We'll get there. Anyways, this section has gone on way longer than I intended, but I will wrap up by saying this. All of this, all the stuff I just pointed out, it's in service of the broader point I was making earlier about what kind of story this is and why. Lewis was a Christian reader of a non-Christian narrative, And in the act of reading, he transformed the text. That's how reading works. What we have the benefit of in Till We Have Faces, however, is that we can see pretty clearly a reprojection of that new meaning. And we can pick apart the mediations that the new text sets up between us, the readers of Till We Have Faces, and the version in The Golden Ass. It also allows us to understand, to some degree, I think, what a Christian lens does to reading the golden ass in general. Reading is transformative of both text and reader and the ways that Lewis understood the story because of his own cultural and religious background come through strongly in the new text he produced. That's why I'm talking about all of this. Fundamental. So, okay, it is time at last to do the thing I am actually good at, being aggressively feminist all over a text. Like, listen, I'm fine at reception stuff and religion stuff and, like, whatever, but if you are a regular listener of this podcast, you know that there is nothing I love more than to absolutely pop off about gender theory, and it is time. So, okay, here is the first thing. This is a book about a woman, about a relationship between women, and about a woman's relationship to her looks and her beauty, and it is extremely written by a man. Now listen, I don't actually think there's anything wrong with writing books about women, beauty, or body image. Or any of those things in conjunction, even when it's men doing it. I was obsessed with Uglies by Scott Westerfeld as a kid too, it's fine. But holy shit, do I ever wish that books and media in general would stop uncritically equating womanhood and beauty. This book has a huge problem with that. Orwell, our point of view character is ugly. This gets hammered in again and again and again. She is not good looking. She's undesirable to men and she's undesirable to herself. It's partly as a foil to Psyche, who's conspicuously like the most beautiful ever. Remember the Helen of Troy comparison? Yeah. But also the way Orwell's ugliness is talked about in the book is extremely gendered, by which I mean like tied directly to her womanhood. On page 228, Orwell says in the narration, quote, I had some profit of my ugliness. They did not think of me as a woman. Unquote. There are also multiple remarks on how much it's a shame that she weren't born a man. Bardia, the guard captain, does it twice in the first hundred pages, including at one point on page 92, where he says to someone else, quote, Why, yes, it's a pity about her face, but she's a brave girl and honest. If a man was blind and she weren't the king's daughter, she'd make him a good wife. I'm going to come back to Orwell and wifehood and virginity in a second because holy shit that one is loaded. Anyway, suffice to say that Orwell's ugliness seems in the text of the novel to divorce her entirely from womanhood. Meanwhile, she has two sisters who provide two paradigms of what a woman, a beautiful woman, can be. Psyche, of course, is the divinely blessed beauty and married to a god. She's a paragon. Their other sister, Redival, she's the middle child, is also beautiful, but she, gasp, cares about beauty and likes boys and stuff like that? Huh. Oh no. Unsurprisingly, she gets in trouble early on for sleeping with a lower class boy in the palace, and eventually Orwell becomes queen and marries her off post haste. So we get the second type of woman, the whore. Paragons and whores and nothing in between. Hmm, definitely heard that one before. God, I'm tired. Anyway, so Psyche, beautiful, divinely so, gets married to a god. Redival, also beautiful, but in a mortal way, gets married to a regular man. Orual, ugly, and apparently therefore undeserving of quote-unquote real, big air quotes, womanhood, doesn't get married at all. The closest she gets to marriage are those few offhand comments from people like Bardia about how she could be married if she weren't ugly. And then later in the book, she gets to have her later relationship with Bardia himself where she's like his work wife and his real wife resents her for working him literally to death. I Don't get me started. And then there's this passage on page 220. This makes me insane. Okay, listen. So she's just killed a dude in a duel for the sake of her kingdom. And she says, quote, I felt myself changed too, as if something had been taken away from me. I have often wondered if women feel like that when they lose their virginity. Unquote. Just sit with that for a second. As if something had been taken away from me. And then... If women feel like that when they lose their virginity. Setting aside that once again, Orwell is being totally othered from other women, primarily because she has never and will never know the sexual touch of a man. Again, do not get me started. This idea that women lose something when they have sex for the first time is just... Look, I get that it's of its time, but it does piss me off. Also, there's a lot of equivalences being drawn, not only here, but also elsewhere in the novel, between sex and death. Psyche and others make a lot of comments about how Psyche's marriage to the god is basically the same as death. So does it matter if she gets killed by the god of the mountain, the shadow beast, whatever he is, or if he marries her? There's a direct comparison on page 49 between consumption and consummation because, quote, some say the loving and the devouring are all the same thing, unquote. Sexual oneness seems to imply destruction or desecration of the one by the other, and so sex and death are unified. This idea isn't unique to Christianity by any means, it comes out of classical cultures, but it definitely is maintained in Christian ideologies about gender. It wasn't a huge shock to me to see these ideas here for all that they make me absolutely fucking nuts. All I can say is I'm glad I grew up in an era where I had better sex education than just don't have sex or you'll die because that's sure the whole idea in this book. But anyway, I've digressed somewhat. Basically what I'm saying here is that this book relies a lot on themes to do with appearance in order to tease out some of the nuances of the narrative of Psyche's sister's jealousy from the original story. Because the aspect of material jealousy is removed, Orwell never sees the castle, and so she can't be envious of the wealth represented there. She can only be jealous of Psyche's relationship to the god. Or, as I think is present, jealous of Psyche's beauty. Orwell loves Psyche possessively and obsessively. She's fixated on her beauty to some degree. She never really articulates jealousy that Psyche is beautiful, but she cannot see any beauty in herself, nor can anyone else see it in her until her face is covered, and so she lacks in a meaningful way in womanhood, and therefore in companionship. Psyche is the only one she can truly depend on for the latter, and Orwell loses her because Psyche has what she cannot. In a way, Orwell's implied jealousy of Psyche's beauty makes her parallel to Aphrodite or Ungit in the story. She herself is the one who drives Psyche and her godly husband apart, and her lack of faith is what inflicts the labors on Psyche. Orwell is Ungit, the jealous primordial figure with a face like a craggy black stone who cannot be appreciated by the common folk. They prefer a finer figure and only accept her as something beyond human when her true appearance is hidden. See, I haven't mentioned this until now, But Orwell spends almost half the book constantly veiled. She hides her identity and her gender, her her lack of gender, maybe, behind the veil, and she gains a lot of power from that. On page 228, in the same place that she talks about being deprived of womanhood by her ugliness, she talks about the power that comes when her face is only imaginary people begin to ascribe divine power and beauty to her voice and imagine her face as, quote, frightful beyond endurance, or even, quote again, a beauty so dazzling that if she let it be seen, all the men in the world would run mad, unquote. Hiding her face makes her a sort of Schrodinger's woman, at once inhumanly ugly and divinely beautiful, and therefore both human and divine, woman and not woman, all at once. With that shifting facade of identity, she can do and be anything she wants. The only thing she can't do, however, is face herself. Literally, Orwell has no face because she hides her own identity, the truth of herself, from everyone, including herself. See, the title of this book comes from a line on page 294. How can they, that is, the gods, meet us face to face till we have faces? Orwell has no face, so she cannot face the gods. Similarly, to her, for much of the book, the face of Unged is hidden, shifting, and unknowable. It's only when Orwell comes to terms with her own self that she's able to realize the truth about the gods, and indeed that the shadowed hidden one who has all this time been responsible for her troubles was herself, not the gods. Now, this does bug me. Orwell's definitely an unreliable narrator, she doesn't accept her own part in Psyche's suffering or really in her own, but I don't think it's because she hasn't come to terms with herself or her lot in life. She's demonstrably curious, intelligent, resilient, talented, physically skilled, charismatic, and wise. She's an excellent queen, she rules well. She might not be happy, exactly, but it's not because she isn't aware of herself. She just doesn't have a relationship with the gods, which I'm not sure Lewis is willing to acknowledge isn't, like, a failing of her as a person. The thing is, at the end of the book, it's kind of implied that the gods, like, retcon everything that happened to become the version of the events in the original Cupid and Psyche story. Orwell saw the castle and destroyed Psyche's future out of jealousy. But that wasn't true for most of Orwell's life, and it wasn't what she believed of herself until the gods, like, made it so? Gaslit her into believing it? Or something? I, like... She's been a good person, maybe a little too attached to her sister, but who overall just wanted to try to protect her from being raped by deception at best and actively preyed upon by an immortal monster at worst. When it went bad and Psyche was hurt, Orwell spent her whole life missing and mourning her. None of those things are the actions of a callous, jealous person who wanted what her sister had for herself, just that she wanted her person back. So, like, the implication that Orwell is unable to face herself as represented by her veil and is therefore unable to find happiness is troublesome to me. She is forced by the narrative to accept a version of herself that is dictated to her by the gods in order to meet them and understand their actions. She has to don the face that they design for her rather than the face that she's always had to carry because of her birth. I don't know if it's possible for me to articulate why this bugs me so much, but I'll just leave it at that. The point I'm making, I guess, is that this book has huge problems with women, beauty, and identity. It makes the way we relate to our bodies fundamental to how we relate to ourselves without leaving any space for personal creation of self-image beyond what's dictated to us by others based on their perceptions of our appearance. As a strong proponent of queer and trans theory, this bugs me. And as a proponent of feminist theory, the fact that this is all stacked on, if you're not the right kind of woman, you're not a woman at all. It it bothers me even more. (sighs) This section doesn't really have a tidy thesis because it's mostly me getting big mad about misogyny, but the relationship between beauty and divinity and gender are like pretty fundamental to the themes of this novel, to the way Lewis read the Cupid and Psyche narrative. Maybe it's part of putting the story into an outsider's point of view. It's not about the trials of true love and Psyche's apotheosis, as it is in Apuleius, so much as the way that us puny mortals navigate our relationships with the divine and those in touch with the divine around us. And especially the way that those relationships are mediated by like the way that we relate to ourselves. So, okay, I think that's all my stuff. Like the big stuff. My actual educated opinions. Time for me to briefly get grumpy, because I sure do have some petty gripes. Well, okay, so the whole section on gender was kind of one big non-petty gripe, but whatever. Anyway, first of all, I fucking hate, 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 hate the way that Lewis uses the word slut. He uses the word to refer to enslaved women in the palace at Glome who are sexually promiscuous with no other descriptor of who these people are, and the women that are referred to as such uh, get treated terribly in a really offhand way by Orwell. It's super gross. Also gross is the way that Lewis treats slavery in general in this book, But the other extremely shining, and by shining I mean stinking, example is the way that the narrative talks about Orwell's maidservant. She's a dark-skinned enslaved woman from a faraway land of little description, and she's often characterized as unintelligent and even childish, especially in relation to her inability to speak the language of Gloam fluently. It's just one disgusting racist stereotype on top of another, and like, again, I get that this was the 50s, but being super racist wasn't actually cool back then, for all that it was more common, and it's definitely offensive now. (sighs) Anyway, neither of those gripes was actually that petty. They were both pretty serious, uh, but I will attempt to finish on a bit of a high note. Well, a note of interest rather than just a gripe. So in this book, Orwell has an interesting relationship with her father, the king, and most of the scenes with the two of them really reminded me of Alexander literature. Um, Alexander in ancient literature to some degree, but especially modern literature and the way that it often figures Alexander's relationship with his father, King Philip. The desire of the heir to succeed the father, the father's violent and often drunken behavior, the way that the child is a prodigy and clearly destined to rule. I don't know. There's a lot in there. I don't know that it's strong enough or intentional enough to say that Lewis was going for anything here, so I didn't include it up in the intertextuality section, but I think there's some stuff going on. Beyond that, I guess that's basically it. There are other things I could talk about in the way this book is receiving Apuleius. There's an interesting book chapter by a guy called Freedom and Druze that I'm sticking into the bibliography, which I didn't end up talking about here because I didn't talk much about Platonism, but he picks apart the philosophical underpinnings in the book a bit. If you're more interested in hearing about the Fox, who I, like, didn't talk about, whoops, uh, you can try there. Or, you know, send me questions on Twitter, and I will do my best. To my professor, who had to listen to a lot of rambling, thank you for putting up with me, and I hope you at least found this interesting. To the regular listeners of this podcast, if any of you made it this far, I'm sorry, and I miss Allison, too. But thank you for sticking with me. Please hit us up on Twitter, as always, if you want to tell me how much you hated and or loved this episode. And don't read till we have faces. Just spare yourself. Go read The Golden Ass instead. It's much more fun. Thanks for listening to Classically Great. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, and on the ancestral land of the Ho Chunk Nation. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. Finally, some acknowledgments. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. I don't know what our next episode is going to be because I'm not sure when we'll be publishing this one, but it'll be eventually and it'll be on something. As always, be well and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did.